Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. Welcome back, everyone. This is the first episode of May It Displease the Court, Season 2. I am Mary, uh, Mary Whiteside, your host for today. And this is a podcast about how the legal system has always sucked and then a few tyrannical billionaires rigged it for themselves. Now, I am an appellate attorney, but I was a trial attorney for most of my career, and that's going to be what's most relevant to today's episode, which is going to be focusing on bail reform and specifically what's happened in New York. Now, episodes this season are going to typically be shorter. That's my goal. They're going to be around a half an hour, give or take, and are going to drop at least every other week. Do you have a question that you want to have discussed? Please tweet us at courtpod or email us at displeasethecourt at gmail.com. Now, please don't bother asking me any personal legal questions. I'm not your lawyer, and I'm never going to give you legal advice. But if you're wondering what the deal is with the filibuster or can Biden really cancel student debt, please ask away. We really want to hear your ideas for episodes. Today, we are going to be welcoming back our friend from Season 1, Episode 2, Attorney Eric Teifke, to discuss the fairly recent bail reforms in New York. Now, they were not super recent because we wanted to find out how is this working in New York, because I know there's a lot of fear about bail reform in the country. Eric has been on the front lines as the second assistant public defender in Monroe County. Uh, We worked together back when I worked in that office for the public defender's office. He handles violent felony and major drug cases. He also supervises attorneys. He handles bail applications himself regularly, and he trains attorneys as part of their continuing legal education. He also is a former director of the Syracuse University School of Law's Criminal Defense Clinic, and he's currently a professor of practice at the law school. Now, New York passed a bail reform law, and this was a really significant change in the law and generated a lot of reaction, especially from police and prosecutors and everybody who tends to get scared about law reform. So, Eric, can you kind of explain for the for you know the audience what the law was like before and how the changes um, affected everything? Sure, I'm glad to be with you. So. In January of 2020, several criminal justice reforms were put in place in New York State. Speedy trial reform, discovery reform, and of course, bail reform. And the reforms were a response to longstanding historical problems with the way bail had been used. Um, Bail had been and is designed to ensure that a person who's arrested and charged is going to continue to return to court until their case is resolved. When a person doesn't return to court, the court has to have the person arrested and brought to court or engage in other measures, some of them expensive and time-consuming, so that the person is brought to court and the case can ultimately be concluded. There are always some small portion of all people that are accused and prosecuted that do not return to court. Judges used to 
have a tremendous amount of discretion. When you were arrested and prosecuted, judges got to decide whether or not you were going to spend um, the time between your arrest and the conclusion of your case in jail or not in jail. So they had a tremendous amount of discretion, and they were expected to exercise that discretion according to the statute that was in place at the time. But what judges were doing was, for so long, uh, generation after generation, they were abusing their discretion. So the legislature finally, after generation of generation of judicial abuse of the bail laws, took the judge's discretion away. Judges no longer do not have the power they used to have. They are now required to release people where they used to hold people. This, of course, doesn't apply to every offense, but it applies to a great many offenses. It essentially strips away judicial discretion because, as it turned out, we couldn't trust judges to use that discretion equitably. Now, this law, that the bail law that had been in place before, had been in place since you know 1947. So we're talking like over 70 years of a law stating that judges were supposed to be only setting bail to ensure that people come back to court. But you know, I can tell you from my experience when I worked there, and when I was you know doing arraignments, that's not at all how arraignments went, you know, and bail arraignments and things like that isn't something that you really study in law school. It's kind of on the job training. And I think it's probably, you know, similar for, for judges too. You kind of, you, you kind of get, you watch other people do it and you, and you, you know, learn what arguments you should make to try to get people released or prosecutors, you know, obviously want them held. And, you know, you would, we would make arguments to get them released, but there was this kind of just an understanding that judges were also considering how, you know, dangerous a person was in the amount of uh, money they set for bail. Or frankly, they were just in a lot of instances, like with misdemeanors or low level, you know, nonviolent felonies. It was kind of standard. It really didn't matter what you said. And it didn't, it was like, well, I, I, I set this amount of bail for this type of crime. It was really pretty formulaic, at least in my experience of that. So it wasn't really until researching for this podcast did I learn that judges were never supposed to take dangerousness into consideration, and they hadn't been able to take that into consideration for over 70 years. But that was not what was going on. So after they changed the law in 2020, you know, there was police officers, DAs, anybody who was kind of pro-police, at least in my social media timeline, like they like basically lost their shit. And they were posting all these memes and these stories to get people riled up about, you know, how all of these dangerous people were going to be released. And, you know, this, this bail reform is ridiculous and nobody's safe anymore. When, and I would write back, you know, especially to the prosecutors that I know, I'd be like, you know, you know very well that wealthy people have always been able to get released because they can just afford to make pretty much whatever bail is set for them. And so they always got out and they were able to defend their cases, even if they were serious sexual assault or or crimes against children or murder, you know, even violent felonies, they were able, or massive frauds they were able to get out. And so it was really the people who were poor that were unable to get out. And that that was a huge issue really had been going on for generations sure. um, that this yeah. law was addressing. Yeah. And it, I mean, this is something that's within the experience of anyone 
listening to this podcast. Um, even if you have no experience with the criminal justice system, you know that rich people um, spend the time between arrest and trial at home. And they come to court dressed as civilians and they walk out of court every day. And it's a much um, better place. Your, your likelihood of successfully defending yourself against a charge is going to go up when you're not in jail during the pendency of the charge. Um, you get to sleep in your own bed. You get good nutrition, good medical care, good access to your attorney, good access to your family. Being prosecuted is, is, being prosecuted is extraordinarily stressful, but it's vastly more stressful when you're isolated um, in a jail, away from your family, away from your surroundings, and uh, you know, away from your attorneys, frankly. So your likelihood of being, you know, getting a bad result goes up when you're incarcerated. So prosecutors have a tremendous interest in keeping people in jail. Police officers have a tremendous interest in keeping keeping people in jail, and so do judges, because frankly, uh, they all benefit when people plead guilty as opposed to exercising the right to trial. And incarcerated people often plead guilty simply to be released. They'll, they'll, they'll charge you and then they'll dangle a probation sentence or some variety of release in front of you if only you plead guilty and relieve them of all of the time and effort it would have taken them to try your case that you may have prevailed at. Uh, police officers, when the law changed, making it harder for judges to hold the people they arrested in custody, whined and whined and whined. And they went to their you know, standard bag of tricks by saying to the public, these reforms will make you less safe. Um, judges didn't like the reforms because the power that they'd always had had been stripped away. Uh, it had been stripped away because they abused their authority, um, but they didn't see it that way. They, they liked having that power over people. Uh, police officers liked to have seen the, the fruits of their labor. They think that when they arrest somebody, the person should go in jail. If they're not in jail, then their efforts were wasted. And prosecutors know that an incarcerated person is going to see a lower chance of winning their trial because they're isolated from their attorneys, they can't assist in their defense, and they're more likely to plead guilty if they're um, a release or a non-incarcerated you know, incarcerated sentence is dangled in front of them. So prosecutors, police, and uh, judges all have a tremendous incentive in people being in jail after their arrest while their case is going on because it's a way to coerce a plea out of the person and, and you know, it's arguably punishment before conviction. So even if you end up prevailing, they got a, they got a pound of flesh out of you. Absolutely. And also, you know, when you're in, when you're incarcerated, it, it does a lot while you're, you know, defending the case, it does a lot to strip away the presumption of innocence from everybody's mind, from yes. the clerks, from the court reporters, from the bailiffs, from, uh, from the judge, from everybody that, you know, and, and it, there, there's kind of this pallor hanging over the person that they're too dangerous to be out. That's really what everyone's thinking. And yes. it's this, it's this, it's this subtle message. Um, and it's, and the jury, you know, if the jury comes in and they see the defendant who's, you know, guarded by two, two, two or three deputies, there's this inference that they are incredibly dangerous. And there's, you know, and also in certain jurisdictions, you know, they, 
not really so much in New York, but in other places, you know, they don't even have like the right to wear their own clothes or to wear, you know, civilian clothes. So they could be sitting in trial in the jail uniform, which again, also is just sending the, the, the visual message that this person is guilty before the process has come through. Right. You know. Right. Which is why prosecutors have never been troubled by having people um, that they prosecute be in jail. It, it's, a, it's very beneficial to the prosecution. Uh, the police love it. And most judges graduate from prosecutor's offices, so they're never troubled by it either. Um, they have these biases that they bring to the bench. They, uh, they'll tell a defense attorney who, who complains about it that, well, I'll just tell the jury, don't hold it against the person, as though that's going to make it all better. You're not going to overcome strongly held beliefs, prejudices, you know, and, and inferences by, you know, reciting a few words to a jury. They're simply not going to set aside the prejudicial impact of this person being in custody in an orange jumpsuit because some old man in a row says, yeah, yeah, don't hold it against him. Right. What was the result of all of these, uh, the whining campaign that happened after the law was changed? So the law was changed, bringing some much-needed relief to the citizens of New York. Any one of us at any time, whether we believe so or not, could be accused of a crime. And if you're accused and a person's willing to sign a supporting deposition saying that you, sh- you committed a crime, the police are going to arrest you. It doesn't take much more than that. Accusations are incredibly easy. Police will act on them. Once you know, prior to the reforms, you would go to court. Judges would could hold you if they chose to hold you. A lot of judges would hold you simply because they know that you're more likely to plead guilty, relieving them of the work uh, involved in litigating a case. Um, so everybody's it was in everyone's interest, but the defendant, the defendant's attorney, and of course the defendant's family and all the people affected by this person being taken out of their lives and put in a jail cell. So what happened was. These much needed reforms were put in place. You know, these reforms designed to allow people to stay in their communities and report to court while they defend themselves. They're not losing their apartments. I don't think people tend to realize that when you are torn out of your life unexpectedly following an arrest and you are put in jail, think of all the things that would be on your mind. Who's going to feed my dog? Uh, who's going to pay my rent? You know, if no one feeds your dog, Animal control is coming. If no one pays your rent, you're getting evicted. Uh, You might be in a personal relationship. It could be a marriage. That, of course, is going to suffer. You could lose custody of your children. Uh, You could miss very important medical appointments. You know, all of the various things that you need to be (laughs) out of jail for every day just to stay afloat, you now are not able to do. So your life just disintegrates when you're in jail. The reforms were based in part upon the need to not have people's lives be destroyed merely because they've been accused of a crime before they're convicted. So the reforms are put in place, and then the police, for the reasons I've already mentioned, went on a bitching and whining campaign, and they began to try to instill fear in the people of the state of New York, uh, fear that if people aren't held in jail following their arrest, they're going to be coming for you next. It was ridiculous. It was not supported by any evidence. Uh, They dug up the one or two cases where somebody committed a crime, was released on bail, and committed another crime. Um, They, of course, never mentioned the the, the hundreds of thousands of times people were released on bail, returned to their jobs and their families, and did not commit a crime. They went with these, you know, these things rarer than a, you know, it's like shark attack and 
Bigfoot sightings and lightning strikes. And, you know, they were trying to scare people with these long shot things. And it worked to a certain extent. You know, when the police, the police are, have, a, have a powerful voice. You know, people have an irrational reverence for these folks. We just, you know, um, you slap a uniform on someone and for some reason they're, not, they're then more credible. It's ridiculous, but it's, it's the way things are. That whining campaign led to a watering down of the reforms that had been put into place in January of 2020. Several months later, I think it was around May of 2020, the legislature went back to the drawing board. They did not eliminate the reforms but they walked back some of the reforms. So they became less beneficial than they had been, but they're still there. It's certainly a net gain for the citizens of the state of New York, but it wasn't quite as, you know, we're not in that really impressive enlightened um, territory that we had been in from January, 2020 to May, 2020. I think what's most disappointing about that is the fact that, you know, the, the, the law came in in January and the campaign against it from, you know, the, the police particularly was immediate. And so there was absolutely no ability for there to be any type of data collection or any type of systematic look at what, how does this process actually affect people? It was instant fear mongering because that's all they care about. You know, they never they never bothered to collect or look at statistics that said our tough on crime policies are working. It's always the same note over and over and over again. Fear, 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 fear. And this this claim without any support from data that locking people up and being more draconian and making harsher sentences somehow makes people safer. And we have allowed this as citizens. We allow that to be the narrative that wins the day. And that's yeah. something, you know, that really we need to stop because why don't we collect data? The, you know, the, we, there should be data collected and analyzed and that's what should be driving our our systems and you know what is actually working as opposed to just these claims these claims that are that this mass incarceration system is actually making uh, everybody safer right there it was a fact free fear fear campaign and uh, it, you know it it was successful to some extent you know because they're they're really pitching this to the public and what they want is they want the the politicians to get nervous because they want the politicians to envision a circumstance where these reforms uh, led to the release of a person and that person went on to commit a heinous crime. And do they really want to have their name on the legislation that made that possible? And that's how politicians react. Um, They don't say, well, this is the right thing to do. And if something goes wrong and it cost me my job, then so what? That's the way it should be. And someone else can have this job. Politicians don't tend to think like that, just like judges don't tend to think like that. Judges and politicians always think, how might this affect me? Um, so it, it gets away very quickly in a politician or a judge's career from doing the right thing in every circumstance to doing the politically expedient thing. And the politically expedient thing is always going to be being harder on the accused because that will always be something that's more popular to a underinformed or misinformed member of the public. Yeah, and the you know in the cases that were highlighted, you know, there was a scary mugshot and you know, and let's be clear, there is a 
there is a racial, a disproportionate racial impact on incarceration for for minorities uh, in New York. So bail reform is inevitably going to help people of color and people who are more are poorer and more marginalized, you know, be treated more fairly in the criminal justice system by taking away, again, the judge's discretion, which, of course, they're bringing in their own their own biases, their own, whether they're uh, implicit bias or not. Right. I mean, the face of, you know, the the beneficiary of the bail reform is, is the face of a, a young black man, right? Young black men are disproportionately caught up in the criminal justice system. And, you know, when the police suggest that a person who is arrested should be held in custody so that they don't come after you, what they're trying to get you to envision is a black man coming after you. That's the face that they want you to see when they talk about people being charged and released and potentially doing something awful after that. That's what they want you to see. It's an inescapable inference that they want you to draw. They're trying to, to generate that, that, that feeling in your gut, in your mind. You know, the face of the, this is, is the, uh, the black man who, you know, if not incarcerated and separated from you, will get out and you might be their next victim. And so the, the laws have historically and disproportionately affected you know, the non-white population of the state. Um, so there's the racial component of the impact of the prior bail law before the reforms, but also the fear-mongering campaign had a clear racial component to it because, you know, the, the people that were trying to scare us to to uh, walk back the reforms were trying to get us to conjure up that, that the image of, of a black man offending against. So it's an inescapable racial component to all of this. Yeah. And, you know, typically the the people pushing forward this fear mongering campaign are typically they would typically self-identify as fiscally conservative. I mean conservative all around and fiscally conservative. But opposing this reform actually is completely contrary to that because the New York City Comptroller found that the this New York City spent three hundred and thirty seven thousand, over three hundred and thirty seven thousand per incarcerated person during the 2019 fiscal year, that's $924 per day per person. Okay, so you have to multiply that for thousands of people that are being held mostly on low-level crimes, misdemeanors. I mean, I have to say, when I was doing arraignments and I was doing like thousands of misdemeanor arraignments, people were held all the time. I mean, it was it was... It was unbelievable how many people were held. And it's just, it does, it churns through because even a misdemeanor trial takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of resources. You got to, you know, you need investigators and, and just the actual trial itself, picking a jury and all this stuff. It takes a lot of time and a lot of effort. And I mean, the amount of work that you put into a trial versus a case that settles, I mean, it's exponential. I, I don't even, I don't know if you oh. could estimate it. I, yeah. It's and so staggering amount, especially a felony trial. It's just do a really good job. Right. It's, it, it's just a staggering amount of time goes into the, just the preparation. And, and when I was handling, you know, misdemeanors in, in, in city court, 
one period I probably had a thousand cases, which oh, is yeah. well above standards. I mean, it was, you know, it was way above what the, the, the level should have been, you know, which is a failure uh, of the system, failure, you know, in a large part of of, of the government and, and perhaps even the office for not advocating enough. But, but that's what we were stuck with. And you couldn't possibly try all of those cases. You know, I mean, I remember feeling that. I remember feeling that I can't, I can't possibly do it, you know? And so you're caught in this system that doesn't work and it's, it's, it's really demoralizing, you know, if you're on the defense side, cause it just, you know, you feel like, boy, I'm just not doing enough. But in part, if we forced the, you know, we as a society, we as judges um, forced the system to actually work and to hold, you know, give people the rights that the constitution gives them, then there would have to be structural and systemic changes in order to deal with the, the volume and, and, to, and to make sure that everybody got their rights. And because, because it doesn't, because it just continues to function in this broken way by churning through people and not caring what it does to their families, to their jobs, you know, just kind of just doesn't care about this whole class of people it continues to function in this super broken way, you know? And so when you come in with a reform like this, with this bail reform that, that changes this, the, the status quo, then the principles of homeostasis, which kind of says, you know, we want everything to stay the same when something big like this happens, you know, it's kind of expected that there would be some pushback, but that's where we need politicians to stand strong uh, and to see, you know, the vision for reform, you know, and give it a chance, you know, so, so I'm really glad that, you know, most of the reforms stayed in place, but it is disappointing that they kind of, uh, you know, were a bit spineless to roll any of it back before it had a chance to really take full effect. But overall, you know, having it been about a year, and yes, it was a weird year with COVID and everything. So not was not a typical court year. But overall, Eric, what do you think the effects you know, from what you've seen, what are the, have the effects of the bail reform been? Well, as much as I could complain about the, the, the watering down of, of the reforms, the, uh, the effects have been pretty substantial. The, uh, the clients we have on misdemeanor cases are nearly all out of custody. Um, so it really has affected the lives of so many people charged with misdemeanors. For clients that have been charged with nonviolent felony offenses, Nearly all of them uh, have been released. And, you know, people have to understand released doesn't mean you're out of the woods. Released means you've got court dates. There could be an order of protection. You've got the stress of being prosecuted. There could, there's, could be a trial in your future. But you are, instead of in the county jail with us spending about $94 a day on you, you are in your own home with us spending $0 a day on you. And the evidence shows that overwhelmingly, people return for their court dates and they return for their trials. And if they're convicted, they return to be sentenced. So the evidence really doesn't support this. If you let someone go, you're never going to see them again, or you're going to have to go arrest them again, or they're going to go commit some awful offense again. And we are seeing that, you know, we're seeing that being borne out. Our, our clients are being released. And sure enough, they're returning to court. Judges used to use the justification, well, I have to set bail and I'll trust this person to come back to court. And of course, on the next court date, the person would be there because they were in jail. So the judges didn't have any information inconsistent with their position that they need to hold them in jail. But now we're seeing that judges all along were full of it. 
and people did not need to be held in jail, that they could be trusted to return because they're not being held in jail and they are returning now. So it's been a real big benefit. Less families, families fractured, less housing situations lost, less jobs lost. I'm sure over time we'll come to find that people are not suffering mentally and physically um, because of the being out as opposed to being in. Uh, it, I think it's just, you know, it, it's, a, it's a win on so many levels for the citizens of New York. And, and, you know, to double back to where you were at the beginning, to the citizens of New York that are not moneyed. Um, you know, we all sit around and watch rich people, you know, walk into court and walk out of court. Harvey Weinstein, you know, Bernie Madoff, right? Was there any doubt that they would be out of custody while their cases were going on? No, we've come to expect it. It's an unfairness that's been just built into the system. Jeffrey Epstein? Right. No. Yeah, I mean, it's really serious, really seriously dangerous people. Yes, among the most noteworthy, serious crimes that carry hundreds of years worth of time um, and judges were letting people go. Granted, the people had to post bail, but the people asked, you know, said, Judge, I'm willing to post 15 million. Well, 15 million to one of my clients, they're in. 15 million to, you know, Harvey Weinstein. And all right, well, He's out. So one of the components of the bail statute, given the reforms, is that judges are supposed to make individualized bail determinations. The way it always had been done, and you know this, whether you sit in court for a day and uh, you see people come in, possession of a firearm charges, the judge would never look to the person and do a, an evaluation of their economic circumstances to find out how much money that person would have to post to come back for it. Because that's what bail is. We hold the money. Um, it's enough that you can make it, but it's something you can't afford to have us take, which means you have to keep coming back to court and we're going to take it. So it's, it's a it's amount of money that's painful to put up, but doable. And amount of money you're going to keep coming back for because you don't want to lose. Courts never did any determination to see what the economic resources were of the person that they were setting bail on. They just did cookie cutter bails. You're charged with a gun. 5,000, 15,000, 10,000, 20,000, whatever it was, cookie cutter bails with no individualization. Yep, that was an abuse of the discretion. But it, when you abuse your discretion for so long, uh, you know, it, it just becomes like white noise. I mean, everybody in the courtroom was aware of what was happening and attorneys were objecting and appealing to the judges, you know, trying to get the judge to do their job, which was to follow the statute. And judges would lazily just set numbers and avoid the the inquiry they should have engaged in. They should have put time and effort into determining what, if any, bail needed to be set in that case to ensure the person came back. They, they, you know, they ignored that responsibility and they just set cookie cutter bails, not based upon the individual circumstances, just based on the charge defense. It was lazy. It was appalling, but it happened so often that it just became predictable and all, and, and frankly, it just became kind of an accepted abuse of discretion that everybody got used to. But it finally came, you know, it, it got addressed in January of 2020. That discretion was abused for so long in so many ways that the discretion was taken away from judges in a lot of circumstances for a lot of offenses. Very gratifying. Yeah, I mean, that just doesn't happen. Uh, that doesn't happen very often. I'm, you know, you, and yeah, and I think that's as defense attorneys, we get so used to these blanket abuses of discretion or, you know, policies against our clients 
They never said they were taking dangerousness into consideration either, because I think it would have been easier to like figure out I should object to that. It just was kind of unstated, but known. I don't know exactly how to, I can't think of an example of how that happened, but you just knew. I mean, I, I just knew that's what was happening. Yeah. In well, addition I mean, to the laziness. <laughs> you yeah. Know, it was I mean, like, it was both. Yeah. It was both. Yeah. I mean, the laziness is just appalling to me because if you just sit there, granted, this job involves sitting there, right? So how hard can it be? If you're going to do this job that where you get paid a couple hundred thousand dollars a year to sit on your ass, and the job requires you to make individualized determinations of bail, and you can't even be bothered to meet that requirement of your job, I, I, I just have no respect for you. Um, you're stealing is what you're doing. It's a taxpayer ripoff. Why, why shouldn't we give that 200 grand to someone who's willing to do the job right? Well, I think it kind of depends on what the goal of the system is. And I think that we also need to be honest about what the goal of the system is. And systematically abusing poor people and people of color's rights is part of the system. Like, it is across the country. So pretending like it isn't, I think, you know kind of perpetuates a myth that that something is working, you know, it's working in a way, but is is are we okay with that? You know, because it's an, it is it's an abuse of your con- of certain people's constitutional rights. Right. Certain people get all their constitutional rights and certain people, mostly people of color, don't. Yeah, it's it's a that's, people That's a reality. Yeah, it's people that have the softest voice, the less is the, the less, you know, access to power. You know, had these abuses been affecting the lives of, you know, the white upper middle class people, it, it wouldn't have taken 50 years for us to get to reforming. Right. And, and don't, I mean, no one should be fooled into thinking that the legislature was being motivated by a sense of fairness and justice and, you know, racial equity and everything else. There were a lot of progressives who were motivated by just those things, um, very you know, well-intentioned people who were indispensable to securing these reforms. But the truth is, these reforms would not have been secured uh, without the support of some people um, on on the right side of the political spectrum, you know, conservatives. What was in it for them was not doing the right thing. What was appealing to them, because you, they you know, people have been appealing to them forever, you know, the sense of fairness, sense of justice, sense of, you know, trying to get some, some, you know, equal treatment for everybody under the law. That was never moving enough to them. Um, what became unavoidable for them was the, the economic impact. They eventually were moved by the evidence that, you know, of the, you know, the, the economic benefits of letting someone out. It simply became too damn expensive to allow these historically unfair practices to continue. The fact they were either right or wrong didn't matter to a lot of people that supported these reforms. The fact they were too expensive is what mattered. So it was kind of a meeting of the minds. It wasn't a meeting of the minds, but it was a two different you know, sets of people from two different political persuasions found, each found something that they liked in the reforms. And that's right. how it came to be. Well, yeah, I suppose... You know, that is a truth of that is a a real truth is that, you know, over policing uh, and over incarcerating, you know, our minority populations costs a lot of money. And I suppose if that's what moves these, you know, these people, then all right, fine. Yeah, it's sad, uh, but it it got them there. Well, it is sad. But you know what, we could, that money can be better spent in other ways. 
uh, you know, in other programs. I'm not going to support giving those that money, you know, to more rich people. Um, but you know, if we stop sp- spending nearly a thousand dollars a day to incarcerate people in the state, then that money can go to other really important programs. Well, Eric, I want to thank you for your time. I'm uh, I'm I'm glad to hear that about a year into this, that the the dangerous fear mongering hasn't actually played out. Um, you know, and, and I haven't heard anything, you know, from, from that fear-mongering side. Since the, the law was rolled back a bit, nothing. Not a post, not, not nothing, you know. So it was clearly, you know, a coordinated campaign. And luckily, you know, there, enough of the reforms remain that, you know, the citizens of New York can really benefit from, from the law. And, you know, hopefully we also see that kind of change the way trials happen and, and, you know, and how many, you know, and see what the, uh, how many people plead and, you know, kind of hopefully see a trickle down effect of people being out of jail uh, and fighting their charges that way. Yeah. And they do, a lot of it's going to be almost impossible to measure, but it, it's, uh, it, it was kind of baked into the reforms. I think it was, it was clear to at least a lot of people that supported the reforms that there would be less Plus devastation for the you know the people that are arrested and their families and, you know, if they're out of custody. So, you know, I mean, we have you know no shortage of clients who you get arrested, you get released, and you go back to work. You're able to salvage your job. Now, who does that affect, right? Well, it affects the employer who doesn't whose operation is not disrupted by having to search for a new employee. Uh, it affects the family. It affects you know the 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 uh, significant other, uh, the children. It, it, it just, the effects are just kind of, the ripple effects are just kind of endless. So, and that's just one person. And if we're no longer just, you know, plucking people out of their communities and putting them in jail while their case, you know, again, we're talking about pre-trial, pre-conviction detention. Um, the way it had been where people were in custody without being convicted, that should trouble anyone. It's just seemingly inconsistent with the presumption of innocence. Um, so we're not saying that people that are convicted of violent crimes should be returned home. I mean, some should, some shouldn't. Some consideration should be given to incarcerating some people in certain circumstances. We're talking about people here that are presumed innocent, but are in jail. And that should, on the surface of it, just be kind of a troubling circumstance. Because if you spend a year in jail waiting for your trial and you're found not guilty, you don't get a penny for that. You don't get the year back. You don't get compensation. Um, nothing happens other than they say, oh, well, you know, whatever, carry on. You know, no one cares. They keep doing what they're doing. and But your life is never the same. Yeah. And so if you live in a jurisdiction where there hasn't been bail reform laws, uh, and you probably should pay attention to what your jurisdiction is, because as Eric mentioned, anybody can get arrested. Anybody can make an accusation. It could be you. It could be somebody that you love. So it's important to know what kind of a community are you living in? And if it's a community that is doing things different than what you want, then you can use your voice and contact your state representatives and advocate for bail reform. And you can, you know, use New York as an example. It's not, you know, it's done a world of good and it's something that can come to our state as well. All right. Thank you for listening. And I will talk to you again soon. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode. Because unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. 
Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger. Thank you.